Amen. Right now, we need to get into the Word of the Lord. Um, I'm obviously not my caring in a lot of ways. Not the least of which is I'm not going to be done in 30 minutes. So, um, you might as well just settle in for a while. Bible study night. And I've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. And um, this is going to be part two of something we started before Brother Herring arrived. And I'm telling you, looking at my notes, I have serious doubt that we'll finish it in just two parts. Most likely, we're going to have to have a third part as well. And um, so we'll just say it's like the Godhead, these three are one. Hallelujah. All right. If you would turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. This is our text for this lesson. And this is supposed to be lesson two but it's Lesson 2, Part 2. And um, we'll do a review because it's been many weeks. We'll, we'll go back over some things to just remind you where we were. But for now, let's read our text in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, I beseech you or I beg you. That's what this word beseech means. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He said, I'm begging you to just do what's reasonable. I'm not asking too much, considering what the Lord did for us, it's only reasonable that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Then in verse 2 he says, and be not conformed, someone say conformed, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, I would say transformed, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right? So, he tells us, don't be conformed, but be transformed. The title of this lesson is simply transformed, not conformed. And this is a part of the broader series of understanding separation. This very likely will be chapter 2 in the book once we get it all done. Um, but that's not what's important for tonight. What's important for tonight is what I feel on my heart and have felt for months that I needed to do in our Tuesday night services when possible. And that is to teach this church again on the principles of separation. To 
It's been a long time since I've done it. And it's amazing to me how many people get an idea that if the preacher doesn't say it in a while, he's changed his mind. I just want to make sure everyone knows I hadn't changed my mind about anything. I still believe exactly what I've been preaching to you for 27 years. I still believe it. I still believe it. Praise God. Amen. Would you put your Bibles down? Would you lift your voices, lift your hands? Let's ask the Lord to speak to us tonight. I need the touch of God tonight. Let's let's pray together, everyone, right now. Lord, in Praise God, praise God. Let's worship Him one more time, everyone, before you are seated. Let's worship Him. Let's worship Him. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Amen. You may be seated tonight. In our previous part of this lesson, I pointed out to you how the Apostle Paul very aptly described a battle that is waging within every one of us, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, We discussed this, he writes about it in Romans chapter 7 talks about the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Because there is this battle that's going on. There is this law of sin, he said, that is raging in my members. It's just a part of the human condition. It really is. Everybody has this battle to fight. I don't care how long you've been living for God. Everybody has this battle to fight. Hallelujah. He let us know that giving in to the flesh would ultimately end in death. And so he then goes on to very clearly command us Don't be conformed to this world. The word conformed is a compound Greek word. Even its English counterpart is a compound word. Uh, Formed with the prefix con, C-O-N, which is, uh, it, it means together with or joined with. 
And so this whole idea of being conformed, uh, the, the Greek word, when you break it down, the first part means an association, a companionship, a process, a resemblance. The second part means the external fashion or condition. And so when you put those two together, the resulting idea behind the Greek word translated conformed is a resemblance to the external fashion. Paul said, don't do that. Don't try to look like the world. Don't pattern your life after the world. Don't look to them, and I'm a bit ahead of myself by saying this, but don't look to them in how you dress. Don't look to them in um, hairstyles. Well, <clears throat> maybe I need to say that again. Or maybe I don't. But it just never ceases to amaze me how many people consider themselves apostolic, but they want to look like whatever the latest fad is. God help us. There is nobody outside of the church after which I want to model myself. No sports star. No movie star. No music star. Because I'm going to tell you, they're all fallen stars is what they are. They're not the ones I want to pattern my life after. I want to pattern my life after Jesus Christ. I want to become more and more like Him. And so I don't want to be conformed. I don't want to resemble the external fashion of this world. Don't be conformed to this world. And that's why he said that we ought to present our bodies wholly acceptable unto God. So that we are not being conformed. Now, the thing about it is, and I, this is what I brought out in that lesson, is that Paul didn't stop with the negative command, telling us what not to do. But he went on to give us a positive command and told us what we should do. We should not be conformed, but we should be transformed. Well, hallelujah. The word transformed in the original Greek is, is, is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. And we talked about this in the lesson, but a metamorphosis is what happens to a tadpole that turns it into a frog. It literally becomes something different than it was. In fact, the very thing that was sustaining it before once it's gone through metamorphosis, that will kill it. And the reverse is true, that that which provides life after metamorphosis 
will kill that same life before metamorphosis. Before metamorphosis, a tadpole requires water. It has gills. It breathes through those gills underwater. Once it goes through the process of metamorphosis, the gills are gone. The tail is gone. It's developed lungs. It now cannot live underwater. It lives by breathing air. Something a tadpole cannot do. And it cannot live the way the tadpole does. Though that's who it was in the beginning, that's not who it is now. And Paul said that's the same thing that needs to happen to us spiritually. There's got to be such a change in us that the things we used to live on, we now despise. And the things we used to avoid now causes us to thrive. That's what a transformation does. Amen. To be transformed is to go through a spiritual metamorphosis. And that requires a total and complete change. Now let me just throw this out. I don't remember if, if I said this the last time. Uh, I don't think it was in my notes to say it. And so I don't know if I said it or not. If I did, it bears repeating. But I want, I want you to understand that what he commands is transformed. He didn't say, be not conformed to the world, but be conformed to the church. And can I tell you, there's a whole lot of people sitting on apostolic pews that that's all they're doing is conforming to the church. They know how they're supposed to look. They know how they're supposed to act. They know what they're supposed to say. And they're just going through the motions. But there's never been a transformation. And not only should you not be conformed to the world, but you shouldn't be conformed to the church. You should be transformed and then living like an apostolic, living like a Christian, becomes a natural part of who you are. Nobody's got to stand over you and, and make demands. I, I Look, I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but it grieves me sometimes, even in apostolic ranks, when I visit churches and they've got a long list of do's and don'ts, and I mean everything is measured to the T and every, you've got to, it's to me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you're missing the point. May God baptize us with a spirit of holiness that transforms us. Not causes us to be conformed, but it transforms us. So that I love to live this way. I want to live this way. I desire to please God with the way I look and the way I act and the way I speak. That's what's needed in this hour. Hallelujah. Now, we talked about in the last portion of this lesson um, three principal forces that every one of us have to deal with. And those forces are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these forces work together. 
to try to hinder your spiritual walk. Think about it. The flesh is naturally attracted to the things of the world. There's a natural attraction to try to lead you to the world. The world is controlled by the power of the devil. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul called the devil the God of this world. He calls the shots in this world. That's why this world is so upside down right now. Because the devil's in charge. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm debating how deep I need to go into this, but... I think all of us understand how crazy and mixed up this world is. It, it's, it's ridiculous where, where, where we have reached these days. And, and schools taking children and mutilating them without their parents' knowledge and consent. It's absolutely ridiculous. But you want to know why it's happening? Because they are subject to the God of this world. They threw out the Bible a long time ago. They got rid of God a long time ago. And now they want to know, why doesn't God stop the mass shootings? Why doesn't God? What do you mean? You threw him out a long time ago. You didn't want him around. You kicked him out. Now don't blame him that you've gone crazy without him. Uh, anyhow. So these forces work together. The flesh is attracted to the world. The world is controlled by the devil. The devil dominates the world. The world caters to the desires of the flesh. So, I mean, it's just a, a cycle. The three of them, a threefold cord is not easily broken. And this threefold cord will do its best to destroy you. So, you want to know how to get victory over it? The simple answer is this die out to the flesh. Because if you die out to the flesh, it's no longer able to attract you to the world. And if it can't attract you to the world, you're not playing on the devil's turf. The answer is crucify your carnal nature. The world has no attraction to someone who's dead to sin. I pointed this out, but you can take a man that's, that is an absolute alcoholic. Starts his day drinking. When he dies, you can put a six-pack in the casket. There's, there's no attraction anymore because he's dead. The same thing happens spiritually. If you truly die to those things, and listen to me, if there is something that you keep struggling with and struggling with and struggling with, the, the key is you haven't died to that yet. When you die to it, it no longer appeals to you. But as long as it appeals to you, you're still alive. Praise God. 
And so the crucifying of our carnal nature is the only hope we have of becoming free from the entanglements of sin. So that's probably one of the briefest reviews I've done. But I've got so far to go today. So let us continue. Something that I find interesting in the scripture that seems to be almost a contradiction. Um, it's not, of course. I've taught this church there are no contradictions in the word of God. But, but there is, at the very least, a contrast that needs to be made. And, and it's found in, um, to begin with, one of the most well-known uh, and probably the most widely quoted scripture in the Bible. I'm not talking about apostolics. I'm talking about among everybody in the world who identifies as a Christian. You know what that verse is? John 3.16. John 3.16. So let's look at John 3.16 for just a moment. I'm going somewhere with this, but I want us to look at this. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to notice the first line of that verse. Look at it here on the wall, the top line. I want you to see, for God so loved the world. God loved the world. Right? Everybody agree with that? God loved the world. Clear statement. Now John, obviously, the Apostle John is the one who wrote this. Jesus spoke it, but John wrote it down. Now let's go to John's epistle. Same man writing a letter some years later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to what he says. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. In John 3.16, he quotes Jesus as saying, God loved the world. But now John turns around and tells us, don't love the world. Now, how do we reconcile this? How do we put these two things together? Well, first of all, you should notice in John 3.16... That God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. His love was such that he loved them in their condition and wanted to help the world. John says, don't love the world. Let's finish the verse now. Neither the things that are in the world, if any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yeah, see, this is why this is not a contradiction. God loved the world, but John says, if you love the world, then God's love is not in you. Well, how's that? I'll tell you how. Because the love of John 3.16 is a love that caused him to give sacrificially in order to save. But the love that's being condemned in 1 John 2.15 is a love that wants to get what the world has to offer. So don't love the world and don't love the things that are in the world. Because if you have that kind of love, you don't have the love that God has. And in fact, 
This is proven when we go on to the very next verse. That was 1 John 2, 15. Let's go on to verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so here you see, this is what he says is in the world. And he said, if you love the things of the world, this is what you're loving. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the things that are in the world. John 3.16 shows that God's love for the world involved loving the people in the world. The people, I stress that, the people in the world enough to give them redemption. But 1 John 2, 15 and 16 shows the children of God should avoid a love for the world that involves loving the things in the world. Because the things of the world consist of the evil forces he lists. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's the kind of love for the world that is prohibited among the people of God. So... So here in 1 John 2.16, the world is defined by what it consists of. And therefore explaining why we must not love it. And there is a threefold source of evil that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, the lust of the flesh is simply the desire of the body to, to satisfy carnal lusts in doing things that are displeasing to God. Did you get that? The lust of the flesh is simply put, carnal desire. Desire to do things which displease God. That's the lust of the flesh. Whatever that is. Lust doesn't necessarily have to be connected to immorality. Lust is simply any carnal desire to do something which displeases God. So anything your flesh desires to do that would displease God... Again, it doesn't have to be immorality. It doesn't have to be sexual in nature. If your flesh is desiring illicit drugs, that's the lust of the flesh. If your flesh desires to skip church, You ever think of that as being the lust of the flesh? It's a carnal desire. It's not pleasing to God. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. As the manner of some is. But so much the more as you see that day approaching. Closer we get to the rapture, we ought to want to be in church more than ever before. I didn't say it's a sin to miss. But I said, there is such a thing as a carnal desire that you just don't want to be there. When you can't, that's one thing. 
but not wanting to is something altogether different. That is a carnal desire. The lust of the flesh. Then there is, secondly, the lust of the eyes. And this is the use of our visual senses to appeal to our carnal impulses. In other words, it would involve sinful temptations that come through the things that we see. And I'm going to tell you, vision is a very powerful sense. How many times have you walked by something you know you don't need to look at? And what happened? You find your eyes headed in that direction. Right? Go to a restaurant and something ungodly is on the screen up above. And you just can't hardly keep your eyes from looking there. But you need to. Well, thank you for the two that's rights that I got. Because it is right. The lust of the eyes. You see, and, and we'll deal with this in a, in a future lesson, but the eyes are really the gate through which the world is able to appeal to the lust of the flesh. The eyes become the gateway to the soul. In fact, again, we'll get to this in detail, but, but the prophet said it this way, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. What I see has an impact on what I desire. And then the third thing that we don't talk about much anymore, in fact, Elder Picklesheimer um, preached a number of messages uh, Phenomenal messages that need to live on forever and everybody needs to hear them. But he preached a number of messages about pride. And, and he asked the question, whatever happened to pride? He said, you know, he said, I remember as a child everybody had to get polio vaccines. And then they quit giving those because we eradicated polio. He said, I want to know, have we eradicated pride? And nobody ever seems to preach on it anymore. Nobody ever seems to want to deal with it anymore. Is it gone? Has it disappeared from the face of the earth? Well, of course not. Pride is perhaps the most dangerous trap that's out there. And look, we can't blame the devil for us getting lifted up in pride. You know why I say that? What caused the devil to become the devil? Pride. When there was no devil to tempt him. Which, by the way, next time the devil wants to tell you what a failure you are, you ought to just tell him, look, devil, you couldn't live for God when there wasn't a devil. But the fact is, he was lifted up in pride. When there was no devil to tempt him. Pride is not a temptation from the devil. Pride is something that comes from within us. 
It's a part of our human condition. And I've seen this. Look, you'd think that in third world countries where folks have absolutely nothing and they don't even know where their next meal is coming from, you'd think there'd be no pride whatsoever in their country. But that's not the case. There's lots of pride. Some of these baptismal services, early on, I, I started finding out that there were certain men who were refusing to be baptized. They saw the need. They got a revelation of the name. But they refused to be baptized for one reason. This was what they said. I am a bishop. And the man baptizing is just a pastor. He cannot baptize me. What do you call that? That's pride. In fact, I've gotten to the place now where I, when I teach on baptism, I just go ahead and hit it before we ever get to that point. And I ask them, who's greater, Jesus or John the Baptist? Jesus was greater than John. Right? Right? It's not a trick question. Jesus was greater than John. But John baptized Jesus. So the greater humbled himself and was baptized of the lesser. Now who do you think you are? And I've said it over there. I've said it. I've, and I've said it just like that. Because it's ridiculous. They have pride in their titles. We've talked about this before. But, but listen... You know, we, we always, we talk about here in America, we, in the apostolic ranks, we talk about so-and-so is a great evangelist or so-and-so, man, he's a really a good pastor. But we, we don't talk much. I mean, there's a five-fold ministry, and we don't ever say, you know, we're having prophet so-and-so come. We're having apostle so-and-so come. You know why? Because all the prophets and apostles are in Africa. Just ask them. Some of you don't understand that remark, but I'll just tell you, you go over there, and, and I'm telling you, they'll introduce themselves by the dozens as I'm apostle so-and-so, I'm prophet so-and-so. You know what that is? That's pride. In fact, one man over there, I've, I've told the church this before, but for those who haven't heard it, there's one man over there that really got lifted up, and he didn't just want to be a prophet. So he started calling himself a major prophet. In fact, he became major prophet one. So if anybody else wanted the title of major prophet, he was above them too. Now I'm telling you the truth. I did explain to those guys, I said, do you know what a major prophet is? Do you know why we have major prophets and minor prophets? In the Bible... There are certain prophetic books that are called the major prophets and certain prophetic books are called the minor prophets. Do you know why they have those names? Well, they, they don't know. And so I explained to them, and this is the truth. I'm not being funny. This is the truth. Isaiah is a major prophet. Ezekiel is a major prophet. Obadiah is a minor prophet. Hosea is a minor prophet. You know the difference between them? It's not their position. It's not what rung of the ladder they're on. 
It's not even how important their message was. We divide them as major or minor on one thing, how long the book is. So I told him, I said, the next time some guy gets up and says, I'm a major prophet, all he's doing is saying I'm long-winded. I know some of you have just given me a new nickname. Shame on you for even thinking such a thing. Lord, help me tonight. Um, where was I? The pride of life. Something I don't have to worry about. You all keep me humble. Uh, this, this pride of life is the most subtle and perhaps the most dangerous of the three. Because it exalts self and causes a person to lift himself up. Which, do you know the end result of pride? Now, I'm not talking about it ends in destruction. We know that. But do you know, maybe I should say, do you know the fruit of pride? Without exception, if pride goes unchecked, pride always leads to disobedience. And ultimately, rebellion. Always. Because when you become lifted up in pride, nobody's going to tell you what to do. In fact, you ever had somebody tell you that? Well, I'm not going to that church. No man's going to tell me what to do. Pride. Nobody's going to tell me how to dress. Pride. That's what it is. I'm sorry. That's what it is. Stubbornness and rebellion are almost, if not entirely, always the outcropping of the pride of life. Why is somebody stubborn? Because they are convinced they are right. That's pride. And that's why the Bible says that stubbornness is as iniquity and, anybody know the rest of that? Idolatry. Stubbornness is the same as idolatry. Now, why would God say that? Because you're making an idol out of yourself. You become your own God. You cannot listen to anybody. Well, we're not as happy as we were a moment ago, but... This threefold source of evil, and this is what I find interesting, is that, you know, the Apostle Paul said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not ignorant. 
we shouldn't be because John laid out for us, these are his devices. He said, all. Do you still have that verse handy, sister? Um, 1 John 2.16. Can you bring that back up for me? 1 John 2.16. I want you to look at this. For, what's the next word? All that is in the world. That's all there is. Everything the world has to offer falls into one of these three categories. It's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. Everything the world and the devil have to offer falls into one of those three categories. So that's why we shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's devices because there's only three things we really need to be familiar with. Look, the devil employed these very tactics way back in the garden. I want you to look at this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree now was... Now, wait, wait, wait. And when the woman... Saw. When the woman... Saw. Saw. There is the lust of the eyes. When the woman saw... That the tree was good for food. It was good for food. And that That's it was the lust of the flesh. And that it was pleasant to it the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired. And a tree to be desired. To make one to wise. To make one wise. The pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Uh-huh. That's what the devil did from the very beginning. That's the only thing he has in his toolbox. You don't think so? Then let's fast forward a few thousand years, about 4,000 years in fact, to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And let's take a look at what goes on there. This is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written. Wait, 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 wait. Command the, this stone... That it be made bread. 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 At the end of a 40-day fast, turn this into food. What is that? The lust of the flesh. He's still on his fast. And the devil's trying to get him to break it. Appealing to his carnal desire, the lust of the flesh. But the Lord answered. Answered him saying, it is written. Written. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. All right, so what happens next? And the devil taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world. And, wait a minute, and he did what? Showed. He showed him. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The lust of the eyes. He's letting him see everything that's out there. The lust of the eyes. Read on. And the devil said unto him, 
all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. I will, I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt not worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And if he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle. Then he brings him to Jerusalem and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now listen to this. And said unto him. And he says to him. If thou be the son of God. If you're the son of God. Cast thyself down from If you are the long awaited Messiah. Then cast yourself down. For it is written. Because it's written, he shall give his angels charge angels over thee. Will be given charge over you to keep thee. to keep you. Now, now you know what he's doing. He's saying, "Let's do a big display for everybody to prove to them who you are." You know what he's appealing to? The pride of life. He did it with Eve. He did it with Jesus. He does it with us. It's the same thing over and over and over. Saints of God, listen to me. If we can get control of our flesh and control of our eyes and we can crucify that carnal uh, aching in us to be lifted up in pride, we've got this thing whipped. It's as simple as that. Don't tell me it's hard to live for God. It's not hard to live for God if you'll crucify your flesh. If you'll make a covenant with your eyes. If you'll recognize you're nothing but glorified dirt. And whatever you have and whatever you become, it's strictly by the mercies of God. He can bring you down in a moment. He can take everything away on a whim. I'm telling you, if you ever become anything, it's going to be because God allowed you to become that. And there's no reason to get lifted up in pride. From dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. What is there to be proud of? Next time you're cleaning the house, you might think that may just be an ancestor there. We're nothing but dust. Oh, we are. What is there to be proud of? Well, have you heard me sing? And who gave you that ability? And who provided you with that talent? Whatever it is that you think you're so proud of, you really need to humble yourself and just thank God that he gave it to you because I promise you, you can wake up tomorrow and it can be gone. I'm telling you, God taught me very early. And I'm just, this is honest confession, all right? This is honest confession. Um, and this is really kind of a good breaking point, so we may not get any further than this tonight. Um, but honest confession, early on in my ministry, I was 16 years old. I preached my first revival. 
in the town of Breckenridge, Texas. A man who uh, helped pray me through to the Holy Ghost was pastoring a church there then. He had been in my home church the night I prayed through. Uh, but he was now pastoring a church, and he wanted me to come and preach a revival for him. So I did. And boy, that first night, of course, I was nervous. I was 16 years old. I was nervous. I'd never preached a revival. I'd never preached outside of my home church. And uh, I was just, I was uptight. I was scared to death. I spent that day praying, begging God, please help me. Please give me something. Please use me, God, tonight. And, and I mean, I recognized if God doesn't help me, it's going to be a disaster. And God, I don't want it to be a disaster. This man's gone to great lengths to get me here. Please help me. And God did. He was so gracious to me. He helped me. And the Holy Ghost fell. And God used me. And, and uh, I walked away from there feeling pretty good about myself. I thought, you know, that wasn't so hard after all. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. I was a kid, all right? I was a kid, and, I, and that next day I thought, nah, that wasn't too big of a deal. I, man, we'll have good church again tonight. So I just kind of took it easy that day and, you know, thought about what I was going to do that night and finally put something together and got up that next night, and it was an absolute flop. I mean, there wasn't an ounce of Holy Ghost anywhere to be found the whole time I tried to preach. And I was so embarrassed. That that night and the next day, I was back on my face pleading with God. God, please, I don't want a repeat performance. You've got to help me tonight. You've got to help me tonight. Please help me. And God was gracious, and he helped me the second night. But you know, I was a hard-headed 16-year-old. I know you've never met any of those. Hard-headed 16-year-old boys, you, those are uncommon, aren't they? <laughs> nope. Oh, they're about a penny a dozen. They're more more common than a dime a dozen. Um, so I, it took me a while to get this through my thick skull. So that next day, third day, whatever it is now, I'm right back to thinking I got it wrapped up. And that night, you guessed it, absolute failure again. And after a couple of times, I finally did catch on. And I said, God, it's not me. If you don't help me, I can't do anything. And God taught me one of the most valuable lessons, not just of my ministry, but of my life in that revival. And he did help us. We had a lady receive the Holy Ghost that... Um, eventually became the church secretary and remained in that position for many, many, many years. In fact, I think she stayed in that position until she finally reached an age where she just wasn't physically able to do it anymore. But she prayed through in that revival when I was a 16-year-old boy. Not because of me, I promise you. But God taught me something very valuable then. And it's a lesson that many, many people need. Whether you're a singer, whether you're a teacher, an artist, an architect, a salesman, I don't care what you are, whatever skills you have, thank God 
for them. Well, I worked hard to learn. I studied. Yeah, I understand. But I'm telling you, God gave you the capacity to learn. It all comes back to Him. It all comes back to Him. He and He alone deserves the honor and the glory for anything we are, anything we've ever been, anything we ever hope to be. God deserves the glory for it all. And if you'll look at that talent or that ability or that skill, not as your own, but as something God loaned to you, then if you do mess up, you can go back to God and say, okay, God, where, where did I miss it? What are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to show me here? And you don't get all depressed. Or if somebody comes along and corrects what you did, you don't get mad about it. Because you realize, hey, God's the one that gave me this skill. And maybe he's using this individual right now to help perfect that skill. You get your feelings hurt or you get mad because somebody corrects you over it. You know what that is? You got it. Same answer as the other questions. That's pride. But through these three devices, the devil endeavors to attract God's people to this world so that he can dominate and control their lives. From the creation of man to the coming of the Savior to this present time, the enemies. Devices have not changed. Here's the verse I mentioned a while ago, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Musicians come. I'm going to stop here. It's right at 9 o'clock. I'm going to stop at this point, and we'll, we'll pick up with a part three uh, at some point. For those that did not hear Sunday morning, Brother, um, Brother Herring is going to be back with us on Sunday. He had to run back home for a week, and, but he'll be back actually getting back on Saturday. He'll be here for the services on Sunday. We're going to continue on for a little while. Don't know how long, but we're going to continue for a little while. Uh, so it may be a few weeks before I get back with part three, but we'll come back with part three at some point. Um, but it's just incumbent upon us that we resist the enemy and we reject what the world and the flesh throw our way. Let us crucify our flesh. Let us reject the world and let us overcome the devil and we will be victorious in our walk with God. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord right now, everybody. Come on, let's love him. Let's talk to him. Lord, help me. Help me. Help me, God. Don't ever let me become lifted up in pride. Lord, get it out of my heart. Get it out of my spirit. 
Help me to crucify the carnal desires of my flesh. Help me, God, to set a covenant with my eyes.